So I know as much as you do about what happens now. This is the questions and answers period. Or dialogue. We'll see. So there's a microphone or two, I'm told, around, and um, here I am. So if anybody has any questions, now is the time. There's one in the back. So everyone here seems to be good examples of uh, how to behave in a large group. But still, I think um, there's something about uh, other humans that just seems to grab your attention. So it can be a bit challenging to stay um, aware and mindful in a large group like this. Um, how do you guys manage? How do we manage? It's, it's <clears throat> a good question, because it is part of the, uh, you know, it's the, the balance that we need to find for ourselves about how to make our whole life into our practice. And we can't just have our whole life be controlled situations where it's easy to be concentrated. So um, we need to find a way of supporting our, um, you know, the, the, the um, capacity that we have to to stay aware and be mindful uh, in changing circumstances. And so the monastery life that we choose to live is really, some people think it's like a permanent retreat center, that you're just always on silent retreat. And anyone who's visited for even a short amount of time knows it's not the case. And that's not because we feel it's impossible to do. We could. We could actually set it up like a retreat center where you don't see the monks or nuns. We just have sort of 23 hours of silent meditation a day in, in a cabin somewhere, and the food is fed through a slot once a day. The other stuff comes out some other slot. But we don't do that. We, we, we choose to make a life where we have to relate to people. We stay in relationship with the community, uh, individuals that we're living with, as well as just the body of the community as a whole. Um, and we have a life that is involving work. We, we choose to, to um, be active. Well, I was visiting the office yesterday, and it's a really, I mean, it's a very full time. Most of you probably know. It's not just this incredible retreat, 400 people every day or whatever it is that's being organized, but there's also, it's leading into this international elders meeting uh, next week, so there's a lot on. Uh, and so I went to the office and, and uh, asked uh, one of the people there if, if she was busy, and she said, uh, no, Ajahn Amaro has been saying the word is active, not, not busy. So it's been very active. And that, that's actually quite skillful. So some, sometimes some of the ways that, we, um, that are useful to, to find a way to really make our life into practice when it's not, you know, the situation is moving faster than we'd like and is full of all kinds of distractions we haven't chosen. Um, it can be uh, very helpful just to do simple things like change the way we think about it, even the language, uh, you know, rather than, thank God, it's so uh, busy right now, 
there's an implication there that I cannot be practicing the way I'd like. If, if, uh, if we think of it as being active, oh, okay, it's just moving fast. You're staying with it. You know, there, there's, a, there's a misunderstanding sometimes of, of what mindfulness means, um, thinking that it means uh, almost the same as, as a kind of a f- uh, intense focused concentration where you have to move very slowly, everything have to, has to be very controlled, and you have to know uh, bit by bit what's happening in a kind of linear way. And that's not, that's not what mindfulness is, not mindfulness with a capital M. You know, mindfulness is is being aware and having the capacity to know uh, what's happening in the present moment, and it's not to do what with what's happening in the present moment. Present moment might be nice and calm and contained and uh, simple, and the present moment might also easily be full of things moving fast and complex, but the capacity to be mindful of the way it is now, this is how it is now, is the same in either case. We can either be uh, forgetting ourselves or we can be right here with our awareness in the present moment. So, you know, I find that it's helpful to have a mix of experience and contrast that in terms of developing the practice. Sometimes solitude and uh, a lot of um, you know, managed containment, simplicity, and then sometimes allowing myself to you know, engage with other people, being active situations, as we do in community. And that's, that's something we choose to do. We actually you know, try to make it so that we have work periods and we have to have uh, meetings with each other sometimes. And then... We don't want to go too far that way. And in a place as big and active as Amaravati, that can be a problem. So we also have to, uh, as practitioners, particularly as a monastic community, find ways to really safeguard uh, the other side of it, the solitary times. So for, for each of you practicing in this retreat with lots of people, you're not probably normally living with 400 others, in tents in the field or wherever you are, it's a matter of uh, seeing how it affects you. How does this affect me? And being mindful, how, whatever the situation and whatever the effect, whether we feel good, whether we feel bad, whether we feel the way we thought we would, or the way we think we shouldn't, whether we feel busy, whether we feel calm. It's like this. That's why Paul, you know, his, his teaching, using these phrases like, it's like this, it sounds so simple, but it's incredibly profound. You really could just take that and stick with it right through to the end. So if you take that, since this is Paul's retreat, his encouragement not to try to worry about how it is, not to try to manipulate conditions, either external or even internal, trying to make yourself feel the way you, you think you should feel in your practice by getting concentrated or anything else, but rather just be committed to this mindfulness in the present moment, seeing things as they are now. It's like this. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. That's a practice. And you can do that. We can actually practice quite uh, profoundly. It's, it's, it's very effective. Without needing to uh, safeguard 
a mental state which is fragile because it depends on conditions. We just need to remember. In its essence, the Pali word sati means remembering. Remember. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. And let the conditions move, including your own mind state. So you feel uh, kind of there are too many people. They're moving too fast. How can I be mindful? Ah, it's like this. You're having that state of mind come up. Ah, that's a state of mind. So these practices that were given by the Buddha um, can be really useful in, in, in giving us ways to do this, where we're taking ourselves out of the habitual ways of conceiving and per- perceiving these things and seeing them as they are um, by noticing, say, the senses, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we feel, sense in a body. And the sixth sense in Buddhism is everything the mind is making out of all that, the worlds we create. And that's what we really want to find, some, some, some technique to help not get drawn into the worlds we're habitually creating. Right? I'm on retreat, I'm in Amaravati, it's a monastery, it should be quiet. So we watch out for the shoulds, shoulds, shouldn'ts, shouldn'ts. And using the senses, just, ah, it's like this, this is what I see. It's like this, this is what I hear. It's like this, this is what I smell. And as we know, if we've been coming for a while and listening to these teachings, you don't need to have the eye. This is what I see, I smell, I hear. It's just seeing this. Hearing this, smelling this, tasting this. And then the I is part of that sixth sense. The, ma- the mind is creating, you know, I am doing this. I am on retreat. I don't want it to be like this. I think it should be like that. That's just the mind sense, just like the, the uh, visual sense. It sees light and color, quite pleasant shapes right now. Auditory sense in the ears, you're hearing my voice and the speakers whatever we smell, then there's the mind. It's constantly creating the world and me and mine and you. So we, we, we use these sort of teachings on the uh, reflecting on the sense experience, reflecting on the khandas, as they call them, as ways to, to bring ourselves out of the narrative. And it doesn't so much depend on everything being absolutely quiet and contained and controlled. We do need to be concentrated enough to, to remember to do this and be able to do it. And we do need to have enough... Uh, you know, uh, safety in the environment and, and containment in the environment than to feel that we can give ourselves to this practice because it isn't easy, even though it's not, you know, it's in essence, it's not complicated to say it's like this. But it's not our habit, so it's hard. It goes against the habit of, of just being me on retreat trying to do the thing I want to do or the thing I think I you know, I, I've got to stop doing. Ajahn Sumedho said last night, stop doing. Ajahn Suchita said this morning, we've got to stop doing. So I've got to do that. Stop doing. It's hard, isn't it? So it's, it's uh, but in essence, it doesn't have to be too complicated. It just take take this, uh, this commitment. I have to kind of surrender. And so the Thai forest tradition in particular uh, uses this kind of turning the dial up like uh, just making it a little intentionally uncomfortable, even a lot intentionally uncomfortable sometimes. Traditionally, in the West, we're kind of soft. We 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 go a little bit uncomfortable. That's my perception, at least. But that's because once we realize we can use uh, the practice in this way, it helps to break out of our habits to have 
things not being the way we think they should be, to not be comfortable, uh, to be to be having to to come up against this this uh, strong sense of uh, should shouldn't I want I don't want. That's what we want to see and practice with. So it's kind of good that it's not the way we think it should be, from my perspective. Um, my question <clears throat> is quite specific to my life at the moment. Um, it's not very general, but I would appreciate any advice. Um, I've currently booked a meditation retreat in Thailand, but um, I'm being enforced to undergo um, medical treatment from the NHS, which I'm not happy with. Um, I've expressed my opinion to the service and um, I'm not receiving any response to that. It seems to be enforced and I really want to go on this retreat and I'm worried that there's going to be some conflict that may prevent me from going to it. So I was wondering if you could give any advice on how to withdraw from the service and get to go on my retreat. Mm. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, I can give, I can reflect on how I would, I, would, I would advise you to practice with what you're experiencing. In terms of withdrawing from the service, you're talking to somebody who's living under President Trump who's stripping all their health care away, so I'm, <laughs> I'm jealous. Um, Maybe I could take your place in the service. <laughs> but, um, but things do happen that we don't want. And so obviously it's in that kind of category. Like you really, so I, what I would do is, is, is do whatever you can practically. Like I don't know the ins and outs of the health service uh, in your situation. But you know, you, you can make a, an informed judgment even if it's different from what the uh, officials or whoever you're working with uh, uh, the judgment they make, make your own judgment, and then just do do what seems uh, uh, reasonable to you, uh, according to you know, the, the the kind of considerations, right? What you'd be giving up, what the consequences would be, what other options there are, how important the retreat is, all those factors. So then, maybe just try to try to do as the best you can. We can't always get it right. In fact, we we can't get it right. One part of our mind's always going to say you got it wrong, right? So, so just do the best you can when you're when you're uh, fairly calm about it, and then really practice with the feelings that are coming up around it. Whether you're able to go or not, whether you get you know whether the the choice that you've made in terms of a course of action actually succeeds or not, you have a chance to practice right now with 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 this these feelings, these strong feelings of I want to go on retreat and I don't want 
this to be happening. And that's the essence of what we have to practice with anyway. In the context of a world which is uncertain, we, you know, it's, it's uncertain. Maybe you get everything and get to the retreat and, the whole, and it gets canceled, right? Something happens. Anything can happen. So what we can know is what's happening right now and, and whether or not we're suffering with it. And so that's really to, to, it'll also be the best preparation for the retreat if you end up getting there, is to just practice with the feelings of wanting and not wanting, the fear, the, all that stuff that's coming up right in the present moment now, practicing skillfully with that. If you do end up on the, on the retreat, well then you'll be in a, you'll have prepared yourself really well. You'll already be in the mode of practice. And if you don't, well, you would have already been practicing. It's, it's kind of good. So, um, you know, I hope that you get on, get to the retreat. Yeah. But well, it's in Thailand, so it'll it's be a in Thailand. Yeah, well, that doesn't guarantee anything, actually. <laughs> but it I may be it. good. You never, you know how it is. We never. The thing is, expectations. It's like monasteries. Like those of us who become monks or nuns, we. The only thing you know is it's not going to be what you expect. That's the only thing that's certain. And uh, there'll be a mix of good and bad, and might be great, might be. So all of that's true. And it's uncertain, and so what you can what you can look at is is the, the the feelings of of whatever they are, however you'd articulate them, right? Fear or or real commitment to like what is it? What's what's underneath it? Sometimes it's a it's a real like in the case of really wanting to go a ret- to a retreat. We, we oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I guess it's the search for truth. Yes, exactly, and that's a great that's a wonderful blessing for any of us to be committed to that search for truth. And that, the NHS can't take that away from you. <laughs> so that's the but thing. But they to can kind of, take away the beach. They can take what? The beach away Ah, the beach, me. yes. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is, we were just up on the Northumberland coast. <laughs> could go to Druridge Bay if you don't get over there. Oh, okay. Very nice. Oh. Mm. Thank you for the tip. Yeah. So, um, sorry, just to summarize, mm. your advice is to take as much action as possible and be aware of how I'm feeling about the situation and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like that. So say for anybody in a situation which we don't like, and say we get caught in doubt, we don't know what to do, do it or don't do it. So then you can only, you have to kind of just, at some point, make a decision. Okay, I will, I will try to do... I will try to undertake this course of action and then just do this, do those things. But but you really have an opportunity. The real practice is in how you're feeling about it all. So so it's like, you know, I, I'm fearing that this won't help. So you be with the fear right now. See how it's it's going to make you suffer if you, if you believe the story that it's telling, if you really get drawn into it. But actually as a feeling in the present moment right now, what does it feel like in your body? You know, maybe you can feel some things in the... Where do you feel it? You know, don't actually have to tell me, but just when you're kind of reflecting to yourself, bringing it into the present moment, what actually is this right now? There's mental feelings, there's physical feelings, and that's the way to sort of not get drawn into the story of it. That makes sense. Um, I understand about being aware of what. I'm feeling, 
but I don't understand about the not being drawn into the story about it. Mm. So, like, sometimes, say if I get angry or something, right? I'm a monk, I shouldn't get angry. <laughs> so then somebody does something, and I find myself getting angry. And so then there's a whole lot of things going on. One is, uh-oh, you're a monk, you're an abbot, you shouldn't get angry, right? There's these... And then there's the, there's the thing, there's the, there's, the, there's the actual thing that's triggered it. Whatever, you know, somebody did something, they took the tractor out again and I told them not to. And all that kind of thing. Actually, somebody just put diesel in our lawnmowers. <laughs> all four of them. And in the oil well on one of them, too. I, I didn't get angry on that one, but say I had. <laughs> There'd be, the, there'd be the story around it, like so, so-and-so was supposed to make a policy and why do we have to be so chaotic? And blah, 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 blah. Right? But really what's happening right now is I've got heat in the body, my mind is going, the thoughts are latching on to this feeling of, of anger. It's just, this is the feeling of anger, say. Right? So in your case, maybe the feeling of, of fear or there's probably complicated feelings around authority maybe with the NHS and, and so and those can sometimes tap into other feelings we're not consciously aware of it might often usually in fact goes into things which aren't just about the situation itself but it's about say our history our upbringing our kamma uh, we don't when we practice with it we don't necessarily have to know analyze and, and know specifically all those things that are involved we do have to have a way of freeing ourselves from being just becoming the feeling, just becoming the ang anger, just getting angry, getting afraid. So this mindfulness is the key. You know, this this what you'll hear all week now if you come, when Paul will talk about mindfulness in all kinds of different ways. And that's 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 why it's the door to the deathless. Getting angry is is the way to death. Right? We get angry and then we, we it stops. And then we get angry again and it stops. Something else happens and it stops. We get bored, we die, we get bored, we die. The way out is with awareness, mindfulness. Because then people think that there are only these two options, either I get angry or the anger is not there. I have to block it out, make sure it doesn't come somehow. But that's not true. The middle way, the, the way of practicing with this, with mindfulness, is that feeling can come, but it's just a feeling because we stay with awareness of the feeling, and the, that which is, knows the feeling as a feeling is not the feeling. That which knows anger as anger, this is the feeling of anger, is not itself angry. So that knowing quality that we have, all of us have, you have it, just as much as any of us. It doesn't belong to us. It's not, you know, it's not male, female, anything. All of us have that at, our, at the heart. And so that's what we're trying to learn to recognize in this retreat, and in our practice, learn to become more and more familiar with it, to trust it. We say take refuge in the Buddha. That's what really we're talking about in this practice tradition. And then it'll, it'll, it'll give back to us as much as we give to it. You know, as well, if we really just give ourselves to, ah, this is how it is now. This is a feeling, uncomfortable feeling. We might not even know what it is. Right, and then there's the story. The story is, you know, he did this, and he shouldn't have done that, and the NHS should be like this. It shouldn't be like that. And I'm a person who should have authority, and that's the story. It might be right. It's not saying it's wrong, but that that's the story. And we need a way to just be in the present moment with what's happening, you know, physically, mentally, as an experience. And and th and that mindfulness, that awareness itself, 
is actually already free. We need to just sort of tune into it and stay with it, find it, and it helps us let go of the rest. One more question, sorry if that's okay. Um, in a situation when you are angry or getting angered by, for example, a relative or person from an organization, if you practice mindfulness and you are aware of being angry and aware of your physical reactions, but the object that is triggering the physical reactions is repeating yeah how do you prevent yourself from being overwhelmed by those yeah feelings? that's a good question i mean sometimes you do just need to change the situation somehow you know so tell the person to go or leave or i don't know whatever the situation is sometimes you do have to do that so it's not just an idealistic thing of like we just let the world be completely as it is, and we practice with it. That is, the, from a pure practice standpoint, that is what we do. But actually, in terms of managing skillfully our, our, our lives and, uh, and how to practice, we need to, we need to know our limitations and, and um, uh, uh, you know, do, what we do, do what we need to do to protect ourselves and, and, and protect others sometimes. So, yeah, there, there will be things that you need to do sometimes just to uh, change the situation. Sometimes speaking about it with the person, you know, in that case can help. Sometimes it doesn't, and so some actual different change is needed. And if there's no escape route? Well, <laughs> Ajahn Shah kind of liked that situation. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. sometimes we're talking on different terms. Like if, you, if it's an actual situation where, say, you're in physical danger or something, get yourself out of you know, danger. So, but if it were just talking about being frustrated spiritually, and we feel like there's no place out, but the situation we have is safe enough and moral enough and everything, that can actually be a valuable place. We, we, we can't follow the, the pathway forward or backward or up or down that we normally try to escape. That can be a valuable place to be. Um, but like I say, that's what that's what that's when we really were just talking about an internal struggle, and we have the the resources and capacity to work with it in that way. So I hope you get to your retreat. Thank you. I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Hello, um, I'm coming from a different tradition, from the Galupa, uh, where you do a lot of meditation on death, on the element that dissolve, um, and this practice is mainly aimed at not fearing death, because in the Galupa tradition, the last thought is what is going to uh, project you into the bardo in a certain way. Um, I don't get to hear much. <laughs> Uh, about that uh, in a Theravada tradition. Of course, it does happen. So my question is, do you meditate on that? And if ye yes, um, how? Do you believe in Bardo? Do you believe in rebirth? Uh, what, you know, if you can please spare a few words about uh, how this tradition, uh, what do you believe about that, mm -hmm. or rebirth, or the body dissolving, and well, 
Be yeah. confused, sorry, I'm knowing no, English. No, that's okay. Speak, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Terivana. Sorry, because I hear to hear a lot that meditate on uh, four noble truth a lot. Yeah. What about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's a it's a it's a vast teaching, and it's a it's a it's a vast tradition too, even Theravada. So yes, the short answer is yes. It's very much a part of the the tradition is to. Um, meditate on death, and there are different ways. And uh, some of the ways are classically contained in the texts, and some of the ways are, are um, uh, I, one might say, idiosyncratically created by different uh, practitioners. You know, you have practitioners creating ways of practicing and reflecting on death which are just unique to them because they work well. So we have all of that um, within the tradition, encouraged for individuals to take up as a practice and develop. Uh, and so you will find that uh, more or less taught explicitly in monasteries, uh, particularly in our tradition in Thailand. Um, and uh, you will find uh, that that is, you know, sometimes it's it's to do with um, the individual. So a, a teacher might just be working with individuals at the right time. It's for them. They're asking those questions, and that's the time when they're talking about it with them. Sometimes it's just given uh, generally in terms of uh, talks. In Theravada, we're a bit of a different tradition within Theravada because, um, you know, it's, the, it's called the Thai forest tradition. And here, you know, as, as one of the senior monks years ago once said, it's kind of almost becoming the English countryside tradition. You know, it's developing as it goes to different places. But the Thai forest tradition is known even within Thailand and within Theravada as being... Um, very practice-based, very experience-based, and not so much academic-based. And much of uh, Theravada is uh, academic in the way that one is encouraged to approach one's experience and, and, and practice the teachings. So there's a lot of study involved, a lot of terminology, and um, the forest teachers uh, would often, uh, including our teacher Ajahn Chah, teaching our teacher Ajahn Sumedho, who is teaching this retreat, just say, um, well, okay, you think a lot, wrap up the books, put them aside, and read your heart. And so you're really working with your life as you live it in the context of a training. And it's not so much, it's not something you can really teach in a retreat or as a system. The kind of training we have, the practice life that we're encouraged to live is, is a way of living life. And so we didn't even have retreats in our tradition when they came to England. I think... Uh, some of the monks, like Ajahn, they weren't Ajahn, they were just young monks, Ajahn Kittisara and Ajahn Viridamo, and you probably remember Ajahn Chandasiri. They, they went to a retreat, maybe some of the others, you know, to find out what a retreat is. I think, you know, the Burm, it was the Burmese teachers who were bringing that tradition over. It, really, in Thailand, you just go to the monastery and you live within the context of the precepts. And, the, and then the, the, the precepts will create a container within which... Uh, they do two things. One is they simplify and protect so that they make it easier to practice. And the other is they, they intensify. They kind of create a little pressure cooker so that you can see what's there more clearly. Like when you give up things and you can't do them, you see what you want and what you don't want more clearly. Right? I want some food. I can't have it. <clears throat> Look at that. I didn't realize I was so greedy. I thought I was beyond that. Right? 
somebody tells you what to do and you have to do it and you really don't want to do it. You think, oh, look at that. I thought I was all peaceful and I'd let go of all that. So you get to see this stuff. So that's part of the, you know, the training, the, the rules, as it were, as well as the moral, pre moral precepts are, are really essential for everybody. And then the sort of renunciatory precepts, you do need to have everybody, whether monastic or lay, needs to have renunciation at the heart of the practice eventually. But the form of the precepts might be different. You know, the rules that we actually have could be one way, could be another way. Um, there's nothing especially moral or, or, or special about not eating afternoon, right? So it's just you have these things, they've come, and they're good that you can use them. So our, our way of practice is within a training, a life that you're living, and then you're using your experience as you, as you discover for yourself and the principles of the teaching are communicated by, by teachers uh, giving talks to the whole community, including the lay community. It's not so much that the monks and nuns are kind of taken aside and given the special teachings different, separate from everyone else. It's more just the, 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 the container of the life that you're living starts to work on you. You have these teachings, and it's up to each individual to start to apply them. So part of this whole basket that you're offered is various ways of, of meditating on death, Contemplating the body, there's a lot of body contemplation, including the body after it's died, but also while alive. And so one of the, uh, you know, the ordination meditations that we're given when we become, uh, when, we, when we get ordained, are uh, the only meditation we're given. It's not like Anapanasati. It's uh, nails, teeth, hair of the head, hair of the body, and skin. That's the meditation we're given when we become monks and, and nuns. And, and so we're, uh, we're encouraged to really look at the body as the stuff that it is, rather than the story we're making out of it. And all of that works on the identification with the body, our relationship to life and death. And your question in there, do we have rebirth in the teaching? Well, yes, we absolutely do. And... It's also the case um, that the Buddha didn't try to make us into believers. You know, the Buddha, Buddhism is effective for many people, as well as attractive for many people, because it's not a kind of sign on the dotted line, and now that you're a Buddhist, you must believe this and you must believe that. It's, it's based on your experience, so you experiment for yourself. And so what you can know, then you take as something you know. And what you don't know yet, you take as, you don't, it's a question mark, maybe, maybe not. So the Buddha said, don't disbelieve the things that I say, but also don't just blindly believe them. And yes, he taught rebirth, but he didn't expect us to just blindly believe them. So maybe some people here will have to just suspend disbelief on that one. But uh, certainly for most of the people that I know and myself, I believe in rebirth. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. A life that is simply... Uh, consciousness is simply being created by the material stuff of the body. But that's me, and I see that as a belief rather than something I've tested out and know from my experience. But what I do know is that if I indulge in my angry feelings, I will get angry and I will suffer. And if I'm mindful in the true sense of that word, that feeling can come and I won't get angry. It just comes as a feeling and then it goes. And that's something I can know. So these, these teachings on the Four Noble Truths help us to do that. They really help us work with our experience. It's one of the reasons why I think Paul focuses on that so much.
do you train your mind to not wander around? So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a very good question. In fact, that's a question every single person in this room has asked. <laughs> and that's something which, um, in the end, we have to find for ourselves, but we do have lots of good advice on how to try about, go about that. So the basic way of meditating, like everybody sitting around here, closing their eyes, or even sitting with their eyes open, just doing nothing, right? What are they doing? What are we all doing? And uh, there are various ways of reflecting, like we were just talking about reflecting on death, and there are different kinds of things we can investigate. But the basic thing when we start is just try to be able to sit here and be present without our mind wandering, like you say. So how to do that? So the ways that we're, we're, we're offered to work with is to choose an object of attention, you know, something that we choose to, to pay attention to. And we can, it can be many different things. Uh, the classic one that we often work with is the sensations, the feelings of the breathing, the breathing in and breathing out, whether it's in your belly or in your nostrils or just the breath, wherever you feel it. But it doesn't have to be the breath. It can be, you can keep your eyes open and you can look at a spot on the floor and you can just keep looking at that spot and you try to keep looking at that spot and you notice when you wander away, it's like your mind wandering away because you've forgotten. So you bring yourself back and look at the spot again. And that's, that's really it, is you just, whatever you're using as an object of attention, you can count, you can count, use numbers, say counting from one up to five, and then back, backwards, back down to one. And sometimes you can link that with the breath, so like we breathe in, you breathe, breathe one, one, two, two, three, what am I having for dinner tomorrow night? <laughs> and then you don't, you don't go back to three. You, 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 when you wander off and you realize it, you go back to one, right? One, one, two, and so on, up to five, and then that, back down backwards. Four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. There's different things we can do to help us remember that we're trying to just do this exercise of paying attention. But the main practice is just every time you forget, you bring yourself back. And that's how you train your mind, is every time you forget, you bring yourself back. And after a while, it start, the, time, the time between you forget and remember again gets a little shorter, a little shorter. It takes a long time. So you try to do things you can do. You don't try to do impossible things. Like it's really hard to follow your breath with your eyes closed. Then open your eyes and just sit there. And, okay, just look. Look at the cushion in front of me and just try to be present. Okay, just count to five, count back down. So you do what you can to stay in in the present moment without wondering. But don't worry, if you wonder, that's what we all do, you know, at at the beginning. And then you just have to, when you remember, oh, oh, yeah, right, come back and come back. So it's like training, you you know, like training a puppy. If you had a puppy and you want the puppy to learn to sit, at first, the puppy is just a happy puppy, right? So it's just going to kind of get up and look at you with its tongue out <laughs> and bounce over here and go over there. And you want to train it to sit, so you bring it over here, you put its little bum down on the ground, and you say, sit. And it'll look at you for half a second, and then it'll go, <laughs> right? 
That's the nature of a puppy. And you don't get mad at the puppy and think, you shouldn't do that, you should just sit. You know the puppy's going to do that. But you also know if you keep bringing it back, putting its bum on the ground, saying, sit, it'll kind of get it after a while, right? So you do that with your own mind, and you be kind to it like you would with a puppy. You don't, you don't be hard on your own mind. You just say, right, it's the nature of my mind. It's going to be like the puppy. Thinking about dinner, thinking about this, thinking, why, what's she wearing, what's he doing? Oh, right. So it's like the puppy. And then you just keep coming back down, sit, coming back down. And after a while, it, it actually can stay. And then when we do train our minds to just stay with an object, just watching the feelings of the breath or counting or looking at the spot, and we don't wander, we're just here, then that's when we can start to develop the meditation in other ways. Uh, hello, uh, Ajahn. Uh, I would like to know if um, in America, people who doesn't have approach to national health, are they more of a doers? Are they more what? Of a doers nowadays. <laughs> of a, of a... Doers. To do, more to do. Doers? Yes. I'm not sure. More active. Oh, more active. I'm not sure I understand the question. Say again. You mentioned that the national health is not up to the UK one. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering if uh, in the monastery that you're having uh, authority of, <laughs> are the people more of uh, acting doors in meditation? Or? Hmm. I don't, yeah, it's strange. You know, you, you have different people come in and they, we all have our own ideas about what meditation is when we come in. So that'll, that, that's certainly true uh, in the monastery in New Hampshire, where I am now. And some are really into the non-doing. And they're, and they're into it enough that they know they shouldn't even do the non-doing. It gets complicated. <laughs> and others are doers. But maybe sometimes you can't, you can't do what you want to do. And then you get discouraged. That's the problem with the doing model. So there's a mix, I'd say. How it r relates to the net, to the health, I'm not sure. But I do. I I have to practice with my worry about that. Because <laughs> you know, because it's one thing. You know, you can. I can just. I can sacrifice my own. I, I'm fine to take a risk myself. But when you've got, you're responsible for other people, and so. Uh, so I, yeah, we, we have things to, 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 you're trying to just, you know, be as responsible as you can. This is my take in the situation in which you find yourself. So now we're in Trump land and, um, you just do what you can, the best you can. But then it's always like we were talking about before. You're just always really practicing with whatever it's making you think and feel, you know, what, whatever is actually how it's hitting you. That's what you're always practicing with. Ajahn, um, I had a question about uh, um, intuitive awareness and the knowing. It's here. <laughs> yeah, and the knowing. Like, how do you know that, that this is kind of a truth? Especially uh, if you have certain insights in meditation or um, intuition about someone else or somebody else. How do you know that it, you can trust that awareness and it's not the mind that's basically, well, 
as in Theravada they say you conceive what you perceive. So how do you know that your mind is not playing tricks? It's a good question. And um, basically I, my, I feel like the mind is always playing tricks. And uh, the knowing is what knows the mind is the mind. So it's not so much that there is anything called the knowing that I can find. In fact, all this talk about the knowing and the deathless, all that, I just see it as it's just like a finger pointing to something you can never, like when Paul was saying last night, you can't put it into a concept. So um, it's a method, really, talking about the knowing. You might as well, we, we could also just not talk about the knowing, do it, do it a different way, more classic Theravada way, and it, would, it could still take us to the same thing. They're just different methods, different ways to point towards something which has to be experienced. And it's more experienced as a release from, you know, doing something. So the knowing itself, like when you have feelings like intuitions and a deep sense of, of uh, uh, insight, uh, sometimes we just know uh, an insight to be true, like when we see that uh, we've been caught in emotion to a degree that's made us suffer, and we have this insight where there's a release and it just ends, and you, you kind of know. You've seen through that little that little problem there, right? That little one. You so it's no one has to. You don't you don't doubt it. It's true. You see it. You know it. If it's something that we can doubt, like you know, oh, I think, but I'm not sure, or it seems this way. Well, then it's actually not something we truly know. It's more you know, kind of just take it with a grain of salt, probably, but maybe not. And uh, if doubt does arise, then that's the thing we practice with. Ah, oh, this is doubt. It's not wrong to doubt, but this is this is wichikicha doubt. So um, the knowing is always something, it's not something, right? So it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's like the, con, con, the context for all this content. So that it, it's always, there's always there, and it's not an it. That's why it's hard to talk about it. So it's just a coming back. It's almost like a process of coming back to knowing. That's why for me, it's like this. You know, that when Paul always says, it's so powerful. You can really, really practice with it. Because it, it's a way of staying with the knowing. Where you're kind of coming out of being, uh, she's taking pictures of me, and I'm kind of going like this. <laughs> I have to practice with this picture thing. So um, then, uh, if you doubt, that's okay. It's just see it as doubt. And the knowing is what knows doubt is doubt, right? It's, it's always in movement. It's always like everything arises within it, you could say. Thank you. There are, oh, okay. there are times when I'm engaged in thought, caught up in thought, and then aware that um, I'm engaged in thought and simultaneously aware of the insubstantial nature of thought. So at that point in time, the attachment dissolves, and I might think to myself, end of story. But after listening to you earlier, I'm wondering if this is too narrow an awareness. Um, if, you know, if there's the ability to, to realize that this may be a narrow awareness, that's already... Good, you know, so you, you're just always backing up around how it is. So, yeah, the, um, 
there is a deepening that awareness. Uh, it's hard talking about awareness like a thing, but I, there is a deepening process that happens when we do this practice. And I would say that yeah, you can some, sometimes then have an insight like what you're just talking about, where you start to see, oh yeah, okay, it's not just what I thought it was before. It's there's a larger awareness around all of this. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe, um, just, yeah. Is your mic on? There's a little clip. First of all, I just was asked to pay great respect to yourself from David Hayes from opening of Amaravati years ago. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, first question is, do you have any advices regarding how to teach children mindfulness um, in a different and difficult times? Because nowadays, um, children are basically very spoiled. And um, obviously, social medias and so on. So it is very difficult. And uh, my situation at home is quite peculiar because um, I turned from Christianity into Buddhism. Now... My daughter is Christian, and my son is not believer at all. Now, I would like them to, um, I would like, and I hope I'm teaching them to become good people, good humans. But do you have any specific advices regarding teaching mindfulness, please? For how, how old are the children, do you think? Teenagers. Teen, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> This is exactly the question, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I know that I just gave them a lot of attention, a lot of love. Yeah. So, and I discuss with them uh, situations, like, for example, seeing a homeless person, yeah. not being judgmental, uh, for example, just trying to help everyone, being good and straight from the heart. But... I know that they are naughty, but now and again they can show a finger behind your back mm. and um, things like that, but I'm still working on them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, there's, I don't think there's any simple answer. Um, my feeling is always that the best way is through example. Like if you, if you are practicing and they know you're practicing and, and, and then as much as it affects you, they'll pick up on that, even if it's not conscious, and all the better if it is. But they won't necessarily let you know they're picking up on it, I would imagine, you know, because so, that's the whole thing, the teenage years, you, what you really don't want to do is, is tell them you're teaching them mindfulness, because then they won't want to do it. I mean, maybe yours are different, but that's what, uh, I mean, my own, my mother was practicing when I was a teenager, but she never taught, she never talked about it unless we asked. And it was really good, because then I came to it on my own. I only asked her once. I said, you know, Mom, when you meditate, what do you think about? And she said, well, actually, you're trying not to think about anything. And I said, that's impossible. And that was the end of the conversation. So. <laughs> and she didn't worry. You know, and then it was a, few, a few years later, I came into it on my own from a whole different angle. And then... Um, 
but if you, you know, if you're telling, the teenagers are very wary, as you know better than I do, I'm sure, you know, of, of, a, of the adults, especially the parent figures, telling them what they should do. There are, you know, if, if you're doing it in a sense of an offering, like, especially if you're the grand, are you the grand, you're the, what, you're the older generation, the, the grand generation? No. <laughs> you're the mother. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I can't see. It's not. It's no reflection on the, my, my my eyes aren't very good, so I can't really see what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not but, self grasping. <laughs> yeah. Good. But there's a, you know. So then, if you're the, I would be really careful about about it because they they just they're just not. Sometimes there's a mentor relationship that the older generation can have that is appreciated. I've noticed. So I would say just your own your own interest, your own example. For younger kids, you know, nature is really good, especially these days when people they're almost born with a screen uh, coming out of their hand. Babies can be doing the iPad as infants from the little kids that get brought to the monasteries these days. But uh, so nature, but as teenagers. You know, uh, if they ever ask, how do you deal with stress? There's a whole lot online that if they're not into Buddhism, if it's the religion part of it that they're not interested in, there's like when Paul was saying last night, there's just masses of stuff out there about how mindfulness can help you in all kinds of ways. Um, that might be helpful too. Thank you. Can I ask a second question? Um, um, uh, the problem is that if you are just aware... Uh, about bad deeds and bad karma created. And uh, if you know that someone is really working um, badly and uh, creating bad karma, do we have a right or should we stop them from uh, doing these things, bad things? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a matter of compassion, you know. So you you know when you, when you see someone who's doing something bad, you you really feel for them as well as for the other people involved, whatever the action may be. Um, so you feel for everyone, the the perpetrator as well as the victim, as it were, victims. So you uh, there's no stock answer, but it, it's it's a good thing. To, if you're if you're coming from rather than coming from like a feeling of you should stop and you should be good and or I sh I'm a Buddhist so I should be stopping you, it'll be a less karmically good and less karmically effective because you know, you're coming from a bunch of shoulds and ideals, and there might be a lot of other stuff actually motivating your action. So to clear one's mind, you, we try to clear clear our hearts so we really feel like where am I coming from. And then if, if it feels in the situation that it's, it's suitable uh, and, and called for, then yes, trying to do something from that place is is uh, beautiful action. Called for, yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm supposed to stop it right now. Is it a quick question? Okay. Sorry? Oh, I see. Um, in the present state of teaching and the present understanding of Buddhism within Theravada, 
Do you feel there is sufficient emphasis on gratitude and joy? And uh, for instance, the sutta on the nails, hair, uh, seems to be like uh, mortification of the flesh. Uh, to me, nails, hair, these things are wonderful, miraculous. Yes, there, and 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 I, I, it's a very good question. And I would say, you know, what they are is just what they are. And then if they if they if they seem miraculous to us, that's a, a kind of perception we're having, an emotional state we're having. And if it's a, a wholesome one, then it's it's a skillful state to have. So it is important. I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because the asuba practices on uh, seeing the body for what it is. It are not meant to uh, uh, not meant to engender aversion, and sometimes we assume that they're meant to engender calmness and equanimity, and a sense of of sort of honesty and, and reality. So we 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 see things for what they are, because often we're we're seeing through kind of a veil, um, uh, and so the, the 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 emotions that come up can be varied. But the end result is one of 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 joy, you know, of, of not being attached to want you know needing this body to be a particular way and 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 wanting to get something from other people's <laughs> bodies, and and that whole way of uh, engaging in the world, which is natural. So we're not judging it, but there is a a, a way of being totally calm with it and free from being bound into it which creates uh, great joy and happiness. On the, on the question of gratitude, it's slightly different perhaps, but, uh, but um, I think it is a really, um, really important quality that could be emphasized, couldn't be emphasized too much these days, whether in Theravada or anywhere else. Can I just point out one more thing? Yes. Uh, that... Um, when I think of my late wife, I've been without her for three and a half years. That's regrettable. But I give gratitude. I'm very grateful for the 69 years we spent together. Mm. Yes. That's a very, you know, skillful thing that uh, all of us are encouraged to contemplate. So we, we have the, say, in the traditional teachings, Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, Sangha Nusati. So we reflect on the Buddha, on the Dhamma and the Sangha, and having gratitude for what we've received is one way of, of, of doing that and, and really carrying that around. Uh, and it's a very, very skillful thing to emphasize. Thank you. So we'll, I think we'll end it there. <laughs>